So we're going to be looking at Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 15 through 18. And then chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. And then chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. So let's give our attention to God's Word tonight. It says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and their in the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have, have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray before we... uh, Look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, again we come to your word and we, um, we always need your help. Uh, not just your help, we need you, to, we need you to support everything about this endeavor. We need you to open our ears. We need you to quicken our hearts, um, cause our minds to understand, especially a, 
a potentially uh, such a confusing text as this one. God, would you open it for us? We know that you want us, uh, you reveal to us. So please do that tonight. Show us good news. Uh, We beg you, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you know uh, that this semester we're studying through the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we have said every week that Revelation, um, far from being a book uh, that is some sort of puzzle to figure out, um, a way in which God has concealed information, you know, just for the, uh, the ones that are sharp enough to get to crack through the code, that it's actually quite the opposite, that it's God revealing. That's what revelation means. It's God revealing the truth about what's really going on in the world around us. Um, it's, we've said every week that it's like God pulling back the curtain of reality um, and showing us that there's a whole lot more going on in the, in the universe than just what we can uh, see with our eyes, touch with our hands. Right? He's opening up uh, and revealing truth. And He's doing that to, not to scare His people, not to um, frighten us into submission, but He's doing that to encourage us. So He's revealing to encourage us. So our theme, uh, as you know, every, uh, every week has been the unveiled truth. And tonight, I think what we see here is the unveiled truth of the world. Of worldliness, I guess you could say. The unveiled truth of the world. And we're going to look at that, we're going to look at this vision, really just ask three questions of it tonight. Three points, three questions. First, what is this vision all about? We're going to look at that. Secondly, what does this vision teach us? What does it teach us about worldliness? Thirdly, what does this vision call us to do? All right, so first, what is this vision? What's it all about? Um, and, and like we just said, we, we sort of, uh, you know, we've already cut to the chase. I, I think that it's fair to say that this vision is really about worldliness. It's about the world. Um, Right, if you remember, if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, we've been introduced uh, to Satan, right? To, um, to Satan, who is this very real uh, and very violent figure uh, who's opposed to God's people. And he's actively trying to, uh, to destroy God's people. And then we looked in later weeks, we looked at two of Satan's tools that he uses. Um, that he manipulates to try and uh, destroy God's people, which is uh, the state, right, government, um, social institutions, and religion, right? If you weren't with us, you know, I think it's important to say that those things aren't inherently bad, right? But they're things that Satan uses to manipulate, or he manipulates them to destroy God's, attack and destroy God's people, Um. So tonight, really, I think we get this, we get another vision of, of how Satan attacks his, God's people. Another tool that he uses, so to speak. All right, so what's the vision? Well, we get this, it's a crazy vision, right? In some ways, it's hard to keep up with, but we get this very vivid and powerful vision of this woman, and we're told very clearly that she's a prostitute. Uh, she's sitting, so that you have this picture of a prostitute, and she's sitting on this just horrific beast of some sort. 
The woman's wearing purple and scarlet, right, sort of, um, at least appears to be these sort of beautiful clothes. Royalty seems to sort of be in play here. Um, Yeah, she's dressed very, uh, in some sense, attractive. She's wearing gold and jewelry, um, but she's drunk. And she has this name written across her forehead. Uh, You look in verse 5 and you see what it is. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. You look down at verse 18, it tells us that the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. All right, so what, what do we do with the vision? All right, a couple of thoughts. One, like we've said every week, we're going to go back to that. We're going to understand this in light of the Old Testament. Um, so our first thought, I think, that we need to understand is that, that routinely throughout the Old Testament, the picture of the concept of adultery of prostitution, sexual immorality, is routinely used as a a picture of God's people turning their back on God and going after something other than Him. Of of rejecting God and, and loving something else. Right? It's a picture of spiritual adultery. Uh, the other thought that I want to bring to mind uh, and sort of drill down into is this idea of Babylon. What's that all about? Um, it says that this woman is clearly a depiction of a city, uh, the city of Babylon. So what was Babylon? Well, it all started back in Genesis 11. Genesis 11, you get the story about the Tower of Babel. Right? God had told His people to spread out across the whole world. Go out and spread my name across the, across the entire planet. And what did, what, did the, what did they do? They did really exactly the opposite. They clumped together and they said, we're going to stay here and we're going we're to try to find our identity. We're going to uh, make a name for ourselves. We're not going to spread God's name. We're going we're gonna to make our own name. And so they build a tower, right? And then Babylon later, as you go throughout the Old Testament history, Babylon uh, was the, uh, the kingdom and the, the city that God used to, um, to discipline His people, right? Uh, Babylon comes in and, and is who exiles, takes over Israel and uh, you know, destroys Israel and totes off uh, you know, a lot of their people back to Babylon. And so it's the city of idolatry, right? As you read through the prophets, it's... Um, when they're in Babylon, they're in the, uh, the city where they're tempted basically to, to, for, to forsake God and uh, basically become Babylonians, worship, worship their gods, right? Basically live like they're not God's people. They're tempted to reject God. So look, at this point in history, when John is, is given this vision, uh, no doubt, um, you know, like, so Babylon is long gone. Right, that's distant, distant memory. Um, no doubt, John would have understood this as as Rome, right? The city of city of Rome, the Roman Empire that's in power, that's uh, that's persecuting God's people. Um, and, and no doubt, he's right in understanding it that way. But I think it's important to say that it's not just Rome, right? We get the what does it say that um, that this woman is the mother of prostitutes. In other words, they're going to be, yes, Rome is um, one sort of iteration of this, this great prostitute, but they're going to be a lot more throughout history. And so I think if we put all that together, 
which this has been one of the challenging things of studying through Revelation. I feel like every night there's a lot of, there's a lot of technical sort of things you have to slug through. But I think as, if we put all that together, what we see is that, that this vision of the woman on the beast is representative of the, of the, the world. And so what we mean by the world is certainly not the earth, right, this planet. Um, it's not even uh, culture itself, right, just inherent, uh, uh, just, yeah, culture in and of itself. But it's worldliness, right, the system of, of loving, loving something, trying to find your satisfaction from something other than God. Does that make sense? I think that's what is pictured here. It's basically loving the things of the world instead of the God that created them. That's the picture that we're getting here. That's the vision. All right, so secondly, what does this vision teach us? What are we supposed to learn from this vision? What do we learn about worldliness? Uh, I want to highlight three things real quick that I think that this text shows us about, about the world, right, or worldliness. The first is this. That the world is actually very attractive. The world has an allure to it. Right? This is part of the idea of the, of the image of the prostitute. Right? Um, like we said, she's dressed and in many ways. She's in some sense very attractive. Right? If you think about just prostitution in general, the idea, right? A prostitute wants to um, appear as attractive as possible to, to, to bring people in to... Patron her business, right? She wants to dress herself up to be as attractive as she can. She's communicating, uh, trying to communicate to people, look, um, I will make you happy. I'm sophisticated. um, I'm worth having. If you, you want this, this will satisfy you. It'll make you happy. Right? It's a promise to, yeah, it's a promise to satisfy. Like we talked about, you know, the beast from the, the previous visions that we've seen, right? Where the, the beast of, um, gosh, what was it? The beast from the, I get them confused, the land or the sea, right? The one that we said represents the state. You know, it comes along and basically tries to attack God's people, get them uh, to tempt God's people by, by sheer force. Right? It comes along and it says, don't suffer. If you don't worship me, you're going to suffer. So don't suffer. And then we had the, the beast of religion that tries to get at, uh, tries to get at our hearts. And, and basically this beast comes along and it, and it tempts us by, by sheer pleasure. It comes along and it, it says, look, if you have me, you'll be happy. Don't you want to be happy? Don't you want to enjoy life and find satisfaction? So what does that look like, right? It's the offering, it's the world offering us something, and it can be anything, right? It can be, um, it can be sexuality, it can be money, uh, it can be relationships, it can be comfort, it can be technology, uh, having nice things, the next fun thing over the hill, uh, it can be parties, you know, on and on. It's, the, it's whatever it is, right, that, and it comes along and it's so, it really is, there's a, a strong attraction to it. It seems to offer so much. If I, it seems to say, look, 
I'm the one thing you need that you're missing. And if I just get it, I'll be happy. And look, I think it's important to say that none of those things that are, that are so attractive to us, none of those things are bad. They're not inherently wrong. In fact, they're all, they're all gifts of God, which in some sort of backwards way is why, they're, why they have such power. Right? Sex is, is God's idea. It's an incredible thing, and it's, it's, it has just amazing power behind it, which is why it can be so destructive at the same time. Because they tap into these aspects of who we are as people, what we're built for. So you see that the world, worldliness really is very attractive. It can be very difficult. The second thing I think we see here, this vision teaches us, is that the world is very deceptive. Right, you get the picture from this vision that the closer you get to this prostitute, the more you sort of see her for who she really is. Right, from a distance, it seems sort of attractive. She seems like, all right, the, uh, you know, this seems to promise something. And then as you get closer, as the camera sort of zooms in, you, you start to see a lot of just, uh, you get the real picture of how gross it is. Um, and that she's not quite as attractive uh, as, as she first appeared. I mean, after all, she's riding on a beast. Doesn't seem to be that attractive, right? Um, She's drunk. She has this cup full of abominations, whatever that means. Uh, You see in verse 2 that she's getting getting people drunk. And that the wine that she offers, what people are getting drunk on, is actually being with her. Sort of this weird mixture of, of metaphor, right? She's drunk and she's offering this, this wine and what she's offering is that's making people intoxicated is, is joining with her, being with her. Right, so it's not as attractive as it appears and actually what it's doing is it's trying to, it's trying to dull your senses. She's trying to get you drunk. Right, if you think about it, the imagery of, of you know, being drunk, intoxicated, um, it, it's pretty helpful. It's pretty powerful, right? Um, because what happens when you get drunk, right? It, you've seen movies, sure. What happens? Your senses get dulled, right? Uh, we, you know, we talk about things like uh, liquid courage, right? Somebody gets drunk and their senses get dulled to just how tough they actually are or aren't and how um, adept they are at fighting, and they think, like, I think it'll be a great idea to fight this guy, right? Their, their senses are dull. We talk about uh, beer goggles, right? Alcohol affects the way you, that you perceive things, and your senses are, are, are dulled and, and skewed. And somebody that you may not find attractive uh, when sober, that begins to change a little bit, right? Um, it's why people that are drinking, uh, sometimes they get in cars and they have wrecks, why is that? It, if you think about it, well, sure, it's because their, um, their coordination is off. But why do they even get in the car? Because they don't, they don't recognize that, right? Their senses are dulled to the fact that their senses are dulled. In high school, we used to say, if, uh, if somebody was trying to walk the line, we would always say, like, you're drunk if you're trying, Right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like people are like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. Watch, I'll walk the line. You know, like, all right, that's all I needed to hear. If you're trying to walk sober, people don't do that, right? Anyway. 
Maybe that was just, where'd you go to high school? All right. Um, But we get this picture of how worldliness deceives people, right? It gets them, sort of gets them drunk. Um, All right, so what does that mean for us? Um, I think we could say it like this, that it means that the second we set our hearts on something other than God and and we believe that lie, we believe that um, allure, and we say, all right, that's going to make me happy. The second we set our hearts on that, um, we, be- we become convinced that it will work. That no matter how much we get of it, and no matter how dissatisfied we actually are, it, it actually can- it- our senses become dulled to it, and we think just one more. I just need one more. It, it will work. I know it. Just the next time. So we think, I just need, if I look at one more pornographic image, right? That, that one didn't satisfy, that, that maybe this one will be, one more. One more. On and on. Senses are dulled. It, it makes you drunk. One more sexual conquest. I just need to lose one more pound. Or five more pounds. And I'm convinced it will work. Just one more. On and on. I need to go, uh, I need just, if I just made 10% more than I make now in my job. I'm not asking for a million dollars. I just need just a little bit more a month. That'll make me happy. I need one more mark on my resume. That's a big one here. If I put one more group on there, uh, that uh, I just need one more. I need one more that's a little different. I need, I need to be an officer in this one. Or maybe it's just one more party. That, that'll clinch it for me. So I think you get the idea, right? It, it makes us drunk. And we become convinced that it will work. Uh, another quick uh, uh, application. Uh, I think it means that da- you, you can't dabble with sin. Right? You get the picture that sin necessarily pulls you in. You can't, if you think you have that sin sort of right where you want it, like, look, I'm not addicted to it, right? You're drunk. In some sense, it's already got you. Because it will, it, it pulls you in. All right, the third thing that we learn about the world is that the world is self-destructive. Worldliness, right? When we set our affections on something other than God, it's self-destructive. Self-destructive. Notice the end result of this prostitute. 18.2. The angel says, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. Right, the angel's declaring that her ultimate end is destruction. She's going to be destroyed. But how can the angel say that? Because even, you know, in John's day, Rome was in full effect, right? Yeah, Babylon had been destroyed, but but here's Rome, and it's in full effect. And we can say there have been 20, or 20, let's just say two, 2,000 years of sort of Babylon right after that. So how how can this angel say that 
Right? It seems to be quite alive and well. And that's what we're talking about, right? Even here and now for us. But the angel knows that its ultimate destiny is destruction. That, that worldliness necessarily eats itself. Right? Which is exactly the picture you get uh, in verses, or, uh, chapter 17, 16 through 17. You see that the angel says that the beast and the kings and kingdoms that it represents are going to hate the prostitute. So, right, we get this one picture. Prostitute riding on this beast. Weird. But that the beast and the kingdoms it represents are going to, um, uh, where to go? Hate the prostitute, make her desolate, naked, devour her flesh, burn her up with fire. And it's all under God's authority. Right, this is God-ordained that it happens. And so I think what we, what we see is that you get the picture not so much that God shows up and just drops the hammer on, on Satan and on worldliness, but that, it, that He just lets it do its thing. That, that this concept of worldliness, it just it turns in on itself and it just eats itself. Right? The deception is that, is that we think... Going after whatever, it, it really is working. And I just need one more. I just need one more. And the truth is that it's exactly the opposite is happening. Not only is it not working, not only are you not getting closer to feeling satisfied, you're killing yourself. It's destroying you from the inside. Again, I think alcohol is, is a pretty good image. Um, right, think about it. If you drink too much, you're going to get drunk, and then you're going to get a hangover, and you're going to feel terrible, right? And, you know, y'all, you probably know what causes the hangover. You're actually dehydrated. So think about that for a second. Because you ingested so much liquid, you were ingesting liquid that sort of actively was robbing your body of hydration, Right, think about the irony of that. And now you're, you know, it's, the more you drink, sort of the thirstier you become, in a sense. And the more it just, you know, it's like this downward spiral. And you end up sick and miserable. Right? I, think that's a, I think that's a good picture of what worldliness is like. When we, fi- when we try to find our ultimate satisfaction somewhere else, something that, other than God, it, it, it destroys us. Right, if it's relationships or, or intimacy, maybe that you seek more than anything else, um, and let's say you try to find, you think that's the thing that's going to make me happy, and so you try to find that in your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend. What's going to happen is that you're going to basically you're going to latch on to one another and just suck life out of each other. Because your boyfriend or girlfriend, no other person can handle the weight uh, of your ultimate satisfaction. I heard a speaker one time, um, a guy named John Cox, uh, say he calls it, he is sort of a marriage conference sort of deal, and he called it the uh, two ticks and no dog. Right? A marriage like that where you've, uh, basically, even if you find your ultimate satisfaction in each other, he says it's like two ticks and no dog. You get the idea. Two parasites that just latch onto each other and just try to suck life out of each other. And it just doesn't work. 
or if it's maybe intimacy or acceptance or whatever that you seek and you try to find it in pornography. It's going to destroy you. You've probably heard or maybe you've heard the stats that are apparently uh, pretty staggering of how people that have grown up on pornography, um, that when they, uh, very often when they get married, they can have basically sexless marriages because they, they've, so just, they, they've, so, they've so dulled their senses um, and, and affected what, uh, let's just be quite honest, like what turns them on, that a real person doesn't do it anymore. And so what does that do? It, all it does is drive them back to pornography. And it's just this spiral, right, that keeps going. I'm not sure if this is an illustration or example, but it made me think about uh, celebrities, right, that chase after uh, physical appearance, and so they get, uh, they get some work done, right? And they just get, you just get one little thing done on your face, right? You just get your lips a little bigger, you know, whatever it is. Just one. And, and then it's still not enough. So they, one more. And then they, it's, the next one will fix it. The next one will fix it. And what happens, right? You see these, right? You see them on... Uh, uh, can we let him in? To I don't know if he's trying to get in, but if the door's locked, um, right? And you see the pictures of these people, right? And they just destroyed their face. You get the idea. It's the police. Okay. Good. All right. Um, not sure how to respond to that. Uh, all right. Let's move on. Third point. Thirdly, finally, quickly. What does this vision call us to do? Look, I get it. This may not have been the most cheery RUF sermon. You're like, well, I'm glad I took a break from my you know, studying and whatnot to come here, all this, uh, you know, what, what, we, what we said so far. But I, there is good news. There's actually a lot of good news here. Look at um, 18.4. 18.4, we hear another voice from heaven that says, Come out of her, my people. God gives us this vision of this prostitute and beast. And then he, he calls his people to come out. And now look, it's important to say here that come out of, right, come out of the world. This is not saying leave the world, like have nothing to do with anything that's not Christian. It's not at all what this is saying, right? We have other parts of the Bible that help us with that. Um, you know, go home and read 1 Corinthians 5 and get Paul's explicit instructions not to come out of the world. But he calls us to come out. So what does that mean? I want to end with it. The good news, I think, is basically twofold. First, God calls us to come out, to come away from loving this prostitute, from, from really from ourselves being a prostitute, right? To come out because judgment is coming. And that's actually good news. God is going to judge sin and worldliness. Right? Think about it. if you're John and your brothers and sisters are, are dying and getting persecuted by, by the system of the world. And What great news that God really is going to bring justice. Right? When he heard Babylon has fallen, he thought, thank you, Jesus. That is good news. So there is going to be judgment. Secondly, I want you to see that there's good news inherent in the fact that God has called us to come out. 
Because implicit in that, right, um, and, and based soundly on what we've seen in Revelation, the rest of the Bible, it's not just a call to come out of the world. This is not God saying, like, stop doing bad stuff. This is a call to come out of the world and come to Him. To come and... He's saying, look, you're not meant to give yourself away to this whore that really doesn't love you, right? Think about the, like just the imagery of a prostitute. Does she love her you know, clients, whatever you call them? Of course not. They're just, she uses them, and they use her. It's just means to an end. And God is calling you to see, like, this woman does not love you, but I do. Don't whore yourself out to something that can't satisfy you, but come and run into my arms. Come and run into the arms of the God that loves you. Right? Even though we've committed adultery against Him, right? He offers us to come out and come to Him because who is He? Right? We've said it maybe every week. He is the Lamb that was slain. Right? Jesus is the Lamb that, that comes and stands in our place. That bears all the wrath that the prostitute uh, deserves. Why? Really, ironically, so that, so that He can love whores like us. Alright, if I, think about this. This might sound like a weird sentence. Jesus loved prostitutes. And if that sounds like blasphemous to you, in some ways you're in good company because to the sort of religious people in Jesus' day, that's exactly what they thought too. But think about that good news. Uh, Look, in the most holy way possible, Jesus loved prostitutes a lot. He didn't use them. He loved them. In fact, he didn't just, in one sense, love them. Get this. His, I don't know how many greats, but his great, 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 however many greats, grandmother was a prostitute. And now this is a man, a God, man, who, could, who ordered his own genealogy. You and I don't get to do that. You don't get to pick your parents, your grandparents, who you come from. But he did. And he picked... This lady named Rahab, who was a prostitute, which means the same thing now as it, then as it did now. And he chose her, not just to be in his family, but he records it in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, she's in my family, and I'm not ashamed of her. In fact, I love her. And look, that's the good news. Right? That's the good news of the gospel that, that Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done, he calls you and I out of our, our whoring after these other things that don't, don't save us and don't fix us to come and run into the arms of a God that accepts and not just accepts but adores those that have, that have run around on him. That's the good news. So come out of her, my people. And run into the arms of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, uh, lover of our soul.
What good news that you, um, that you love whores like us. Um, thank you for that good news. Uh, may it change us. And we ask it in your name. Amen.